So there's something rather exciting, isn't there? Being in a crowd, being in a concert, maybe, a sporting event, or another large gathering of people. Who enjoys being in a crowd? Well, not many of you. (laughs) Of course, it's all fine until the mood changes, isn't it? And the crowds can be very fickle. I mean, when I was a teenager, I used to go to Southampton Football Club, and sometimes it was aggro. But some years ago, I went to see a European football match in Holland, Italy versus the Netherlands, and I joined thousands of Dutch supporters. Everybody was wearing orange, obviously apart from the Italians. And we got on the train to go to the stadium, and the train was heaving. It was like a London underground at five o'clock. And these Dutch supporters all started to do this, hundreds of them, and the train was rocking like this. I thought, I don't really want to die like this. This is not the way to die. It was actually terrifying, because that's why you're not allowed to go across bridges uh, in in marching, because you set the the resonance going. And, of course, we've seen some terrible crush disasters, both here and abroad, when the crowd gets out of control. And this morning, we continue our, our current series looking at Jesus' encounters with various people in John's Gospel. And this morning, we've read had read to us that Jesus meets the crowd, or should I say, the crowd followed Jesus. They wouldn't let him go, and he did his best to try and get away. So they've been listening to his teaching, but more than that, they've been observing that he was healing people, and they wanted to see more. I suppose it's a bit like, you know, probably a magician. There's somebody healing people, and yeah, he he was getting famous. And that's why they pursued him round the lake. He was a miracle worker, a prophet, perhaps. There were more than usual at the time because Passover was, uh, which attracted hundreds and thousands of people. I mean, Jerusalem, I think, swelled by something like half a million people. So there were loads of people around at that time. So huge crowds. You wouldn't have liked it at all because nobody likes crowds here. (laughs) Of course, the story is really well known to us and can also be found in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospels. And each take a slightly different angle. Matthew's Gospel says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd. He saw these people, they were hungry, it was probably late, and he healed the sick. That was Matthew's Gospel. In John's Gospel, Jesus asked Philip, where can we buy bread for these people? And of course, as the Bible says, it was a trick question. Jesus knows what he's going to do. And Philip does his sums. He's obviously been a bit of an accountant in his time. We can't even afford to give a little to each person. It would be half a, week, half a year's wages. Well, I, I did a calculation. To feed 5,000 people with a sandwich from a shop today would cost between 15,000 and 17,500 pounds. Um, half the annual salary. So Philip was on the money. St. <laughs> so Matthew's Gospel says in uh, verse 21, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the crowd actually could have been up to 15,000. So a lot more people. And you can't... I feel sorry for Philip. Who feels sorry for Philip? Yeah, it was a a tough one, wasn't it? We'd have probably done the same. Andrew's a little bit more practical. He finds a boy with five, five barley loaves and two fishes. What I found out is that the loaves would have been the very cheapest of bread and held in contempt by most of the population. It's what the poor ate. The fish was likely to be pickled sardines because fresh fish was a luxury 
And at the time in the Roman Empire, pickled fish was ex- extensively eaten. The point is, there wasn't much food being offered here, probably enough to feed a child. Five small, poor loaves and a couple of pickled fish, pickled sardine. Jesus has the crowd sit down. We know the story, gives thanks for the food and as it distributed. And miraculously, there's so much more, there were 12 baskets left. But it was not unusual for people to leave fragments uh, of food at the end of a meal. In Jewish society at the time, at a feast, it was regular practice to leave a small amount, something called peer, as a gift to those who served them. So people would leave a bit on the side for the people who served them. And 12 baskets were collected, one for each of the 12 disciples. I never knew that before. So there you go. Interesting, isn't it? The crowd got what they came for, a miracle. They were so well fed from a paltry meal. And it got them thinking too. Here was a man of God. But more than that, a champion. And crowd psychology is a well-known phenomenon, isn't it? It takes a life of its own. And Jesus could clearly tell what they wanted to do next. Proclaim him king. They were tired of Roman rule and wanted a king to set them free. So the mood changed. Quite a positive change in the, in the crowd. Maybe being like a, a rock concert. And they play the favourite song. And that's what happened here. And Jesus clearly sensed what was going on. And he withdrew alone and to pray with his father. We've missed out actually what comes next. But the crowd find him the next day on the cross the other side of the lake. And there's then a further encounter with the crowd. And I think this is really important this morning. Because the, the reading kind of finished slightly early. So the verse 25 says this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Very famous words. I guess you all know those words. Yeah. They ask him to give this bread forever. And Jesus says that he is the bread of life. He is the way to eternal life. And of course, the bread is a metaphor for his broken body on the cross. Daily bread or its equivalent can only satisfy for a while. And it's only following Jesus that we can actually really bring proper contentment to our lives. The crowd didn't get it. Interestingly, at the end of the chapter, many of the crowd leave disappointed and stop following Jesus. The mood of the crowd changes. A bit like after Holland actually lost, the mood changed. It was a very, very sorrowful bunch. They weren't jumping on the train anymore. They all had their heads down. And these disciples, these followers of Jesus, had their heads down. And I wonder whether the same crowd would later call for Jesus' crucifixion. Certainly some of the Jewish leaders who were present may well have been there shouting for his blood. And the challenge for us today is much like those early disciples in the story where do we get our satisfaction? Kind of reminds me of Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. And I try. It's quite an interesting song. I did look at the lyrics. I'm not going to go into them now. <laughs> but Mick Jagger strutting his stuff. 
I can't get no satisfaction. And despite our faith, do we chase things that ultimately don't satisfy? I'm sure the answer, if we're truthful, is yes. Maybe not all the time, but certainly some of the time. It's so easy to be deflected by the cares of this life, we lose our heavenly focus. It isn't wrong to want things or indeed need things. We all need to live somewhere, eat and drink daily, wear clothes, preferably, participate in life, own computers, have transport to get about, televisions or things that make life easier for us, washing machines and fridges. I work for a charity which helps older people in financial need, and we would regard a television as essential. In fact, we'd also think that some kind of form of telephone, mobile phone that can connect to people is also very essential. The question is, where does it stop? Where does this stop? Well, when I was ordained, something very odd happened. Apart from being ordained, that is. For years, as you know, I've been obsessed by guitars. Reading about them, and all the kit, buying them, playing them, drooling over them, seriously coveting them. And this was stoked by a subscription to this magazine, Guitarist. In reality, this is 160 pages of adverts dressed up as articles. And there's some seriously drool-worthy guitars in this one, I have to say. And like most guitarists, I was never satisfied, ever. It's a well-known phenomenon, psychological phenomenon. It's called gear acquisition syndrome. It applies to camera equipment, hi-fi, cars, cameras, anything. It's a compulsion to own more and more gear, and you're never satisfied. The day I was ordained, I kind of lost interest in the pursuit. It was really weird. It was as though a switch went off. Don't get me wrong, I still like playing guitar, but it no longer has that kind of passion, that passion that I'd spend hours reading this stuff. I can tell you all about all the guitars, by the way, and when they were made. I could always justify the purchase. After all, I started changing tunes, which reformed prisoners through music. And I lead worship in church. (laughs) I was playing guitar for God, and I needed this, and I needed that. It's so easy, isn't it, to displace Jesus in our lives with all these other things. Good things. But anything where Jesus is not the number one spot in our lives is actually an idol. It doesn't have to be a little handmade God. It doesn't have to be anything like that. It's something that displaces Jesus. And Jesus' words that he is the bread of life is a challenge, not a statement. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. After this, he said this, few people, uh, few people followed him. And in verse 67, it says, Jesus says to his disciples, do you want to go as well? And the disciples said, Simon Peter said, Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you're holy one of God. A very good answer from Peter. Well done, Peter. Good answer. 
I think he got the tick that day. The question is, is, does that ring true of me and you? I'm sure it does, actually, for all of us. But now and again, we need just to be reminded. Are we like that crowd, just looking for satisfaction rather than the contentment that Jesus can bring? Maybe each one of us should carry out an audit of our lives and ask ourselves three questions. How much time do I spend in prayer, reading the Bible, or being with other Christians in fellowship? That's question one. Do we invite Jesus to join with us in our daily routine? Do we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us each day? I'm sure we all ask ourselves those questions every day, but it's probably a good idea to try that, just so we can focus at the beginning of the day. So I'm going to finish with a couple of thoughts to help us as we think about the place that Jesus has in our life as the bread of life. The first is a famous quote from theologian Martin Luther, which was popularized by the famous preacher C.H. Spurgeon. Martin Luther, upon being asked one time by a friend what his plans were for the following day, replied, "Uh, work from early to late. In fact, I've got so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Awesome bloke. I'm not sure if I can quite manage that, I confess, but you see Martin Luther's priority there start the day with prayer because he had so much work to do how many of us perhaps say oh, i've got so much work to do i'll just have a quick one secondly there's a very famous little book called the practice and presence of god by brother lawrence who was a 17th century french carmelite monk it's not an easy read actually i have to say because it's in quite quaint language but there's some real gems in it and i'm just going to read a couple of passages out of this so the first uh, is, is from a conversation with, uh, with Brother Lawrence. He told me that the foundation of the spiritual life in him had been a high notion and the esteem of God in faith, which he had well conceived and had no other care at first, but faithfully to reject every other thought that he might perform all his actions for the love of God. So he wants to perform all his actions for the love of God, every single action in the day. It's quite something, that is. And then this is his first, his first letter to, uh, I, I guess, other people, uh, maybe other, other, other monks. Um, Having found in many books different methods of going to God and diverse practices of the spiritual light, life, I thought I'd rather, I would serve rather than to puzzle me than to facilitate, sorry, to facilitate I sought after, which was nothing but how to become holy gods. You get that? It's quite, you see the language, it's quite hard. He wants to become holy gods. This made me resolve to give the all for that all, so that having given myself wholly to God, that he might take away my sin, I renounced for the love of him everything that I was that was not he, and I began to live as if there was none but he and I in the world. So that's what Brother Lawrence did. Of course, he was a monk, he was a single man, but he devoted his entire life just to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. It's quite challenging that, isn't it? That's a quite a challenging thing to do. But I think we can perhaps have some kind of go in our modern world to try and practice that presence of God in our lives. When we get up in the morning, when we go to work, when we do other activities if we're retired or too young or whatever it is, uh, to practice that presence of God in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the bread of life. And through you, our lives are transformed. Help us by the power of your spirit to seek you first in our daily lives. Amen.